You're listening to Working Together for Working Families, sponsored by the Pascal Sykes Foundation. Hello, I'm Jackie Edwards. Welcome to the Working Together for Working Families podcast, where we come together to highlight individuals and organizations working to help whole families reach their goals. Today's episode will be about faith and family. As many of you know, the Pascal Sykes Foundation champions the whole family approach, which is a family-led strategy that provides adults and children with the tools to set, plan for, and achieve their goals together. When the whole family works together to support each other's goals, long-term change, stability, and well-being becomes a reality. For this episode, we are honored to have Reverend Darrell Armstrong. For the last 21 years, Daryl Armstrong has served as the pastor of Shiloh Baptist Church in Trenton, New Jersey. He is also the founder of Faith Leaders Against Abuse in the Home, a new global initiative to make clergy of all faiths more trauma-informed and resilient-minded. He has built his professional career on multi-sector, multi-discipline work to protect children and strengthen their families. From 2010 to 2013, he served as a faith-based consultant for the Pascal Sykes Foundation to help increase the participation of clergy from all faiths in all aspects of the foundation's work. He will lead a conversation on faith and family with a panel of guest interdenominational faith leaders. And now I'm going to turn the conversation over to Reverend Armstrong and his guest panelist. Thank you, Jackie. And I'm excited because I've got two new friends who I am going to take anywhere and everywhere I possibly can when it comes to conversations around multi-faith and interfaith work. And I'm very proud and an honor to introduce Rabbi Pamela Friedman. She is the past president of the Northern California Board of Rabbis and was the founding co-chair of Rabbis for Women of the Wall. She is an author and community advocate, having served on the organizing committee of the Beyond Silence campaign, raising awareness about the prevention and reporting of child abuse in the Bay Area Jewish community. She is uh, on the executive team and executive leadership of United Religions Initiative, a multi-global, multi-faith initiative to increase dialogue among um, clergy of all faith backgrounds, and is also the past president of OHALA, an international association of rabbis and cantors for Jewish renewal. I'm going to stop there and ask um, Rabbi Pam just to say a words of greeting to us. Pam? Thank you so much, Reverend Armstrong, and thank you to the Pascal Sykes Foundation for inviting us to be here today. It is an honor and privilege, um, both as a mother and as a faith leader, uh, to be here with Dr. Awad, with Reverend Armstrong, and with all of you. Thank you so much. And our second guest with me today is Dr. Rania Awad. Dr. Watt is an internationally renowned scholar on the issues of psycho-spiritual well-being and interfaith work as it relates to mental health. She is a practicing psychiatrist based at the Stanford University School of Medicine and a clinical associate professor in the Stanford University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. As the director of the Stanford Muslims and Mental Health Lab, 
She mentors and oversees multiple lines of research focused on Muslim mental health. She is a professor of Islamic law, as if she didn't have enough time on her hands. She's a professor of Islamic law at Zaytuna College, an American Muslim liberal arts college in Berkeley, California. Dr. Awad, thank you for joining us today on this conversation on faith and family. Would you like to have a few words? Thank you so much, um, Reverend Armstrong, and, and thank you to all of everyone here. It's really a pleasure and honor to be here. And it's um, I'm just really excited this morning about the topic itself. I think uh, kind of very much like Rabbi Pam shared, the concept of talking about family and uh, and healing here is is going to be really important in the context of faith. It's it's like right up where a, a passion point for me. So I'm really excited and honored to be with all of you this morning. Thank you. And, and, and for those two reasons that Dr. Watt and Dr. Uh, Rabbi Friedman has shared, um, this work is, is a passion for us, right? We're all adherents to our respective faiths, um, but we believe that one cannot just be in one silo and that part of the work is helping folk understand how to operate professionally and personally outside of their particular silos. So uh, I know that is what Pascal Sykes Foundation is about. So many other foundations um, is concerned about how do we increase dialogue and, and, and often the word used is tolerance. I don't like that word so much because tolerance is kind of a low hanging fruit, right? Just to tolerate you is not what I want to do. I actually want to partner with you. I want to, I want to coordinate. I want to collaborate. I want to communicate. So tolerance is kind of a low hanging word for me, but I understand what it means. We want to be tolerant of each other's faith backgrounds. And I was talking with Rabbi um, Pam earlier that so much of the world's challenges is often traced back to religious um, conflict. And so when it comes to family, Jackie, I know that this is so very important for the foundation. Can you just get start off our conversation, Jackie, with a little bit about what is the whole family approach that the foundation um, projects? And, and then I'll move us into the dialogue of how from our respective faith traditions, Muslim, Jewish, Judeo-Christian, that we echo um, that work and want to be congruent in his praxis. Sure, the whole family approach, it's a family-led strategy. So it's families who are uh, leading the, the work and determining and saying what their needs are. And the Pascal Sykes Foundation fund organizations that support families to help them, to give them the tools that they need in order to strengthen their family unit and to be able to move forward as a family unit as a whole. And, that's, and we also encourage the collaboration. That's a big, um, area and that we focus on and we fund um, the collaborations because not one group can do this work, you know, individually. So, and we also feel that families working together, you know, to support one another is, is important. And so that's what the whole family approach is about. And it's pretty much what families feel they need in order to strengthen and to help, you know, their families grow as a, as a unit. Love it, love it, and 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 so, um, you know, doc, uh, 
Bernice Weisbord, many believe to be the founder of the Family Support Movement and Family Support America, a national NGO that no longer exists. Um, Judy uh, Langford and many of the folk at the Center for the Study of Social Policy um, embrace that same philosophy, right? So I, I think what we're talking about is, number one, the family's voice must be heard. And often in social science and social service work, we predominate the givers and doers of the work tell the families what they need as opposed to listening to the families on what they need and then figure out how to collaborate. And then to your other point, no one agency can do this alone. And so I always say that true collaboration is the sum total of communication. I have to talk to you as an agency. Uh, coordination, I have to um, share resources with you and coordinate what we have. Um, communication, coordination, and cooperation, right? That I want to be in dialogue to make sure that we're working together. So from our respective faith traditions, I think we all would agree, um, Rabbi Friedman and Dr. Awad, that whether Muslim, Jewish, Christian, um, that God has ordained the unit of the family. And it is important that the family has a sense of stability and nurture. Um, it is said, uh, there's a survey that zero to three did many years ago. They said that the vast um, 17,000 families, uh, or parents, excuse me, what is the biggest influence on your parenting? And the number one influence was how I was raised, how I was parented. But the number two biggest influence on parenting, and I would even say by extension family, is my religion. So let's start off there. Um, Rabbi Friedman, talk to us why in the Jewish faith, there would be a sense of support of that, 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 that empirical evidence to say, my religion matters to my parenting and, and raising my children. Thank you for that question, Dr. Armstrong. You know, in the Jewish faith, we recount our history back to the Bible, uh, what we in Judaism call the Hebrew Bible and what's called in the Christian community, the Old Testament. Um, for us, we don't call it the Old Testament because it's, it's our only <laughs> testament. That's right. um, and that story, those stories begin with family. Mm -hmm. Abraham is considered to be the first uh, Hebrew, the first Jew. And right from the get-go, it's messy. You know, <laughs> he's married to Sarah, and then she presents Hagar, and there's a, there's a midrash, there's an interpretation in the Talmud that says that later, after Sarah has died and after Isaac is married, Abraham marries again, and he marries a woman named Keturah. And it says right in the Bible that he married Keturah. But in the Talmud, it says that Keturah was Hagar with another name. Mm. And so this brings a story between the Hebrew Bible and the Holy Quran very close together. And, you know, just the notion of family going all the way back to Adam and Eve, of course, but especially starting from Abraham forward, there's this understanding that family is the basic unit of the Jewish people. And more and more over time, there's an acceptance of whatever the family looks like. Um, gender, sexual preference, uh, blended families after divorce and so on, interfaith. And not everybody has the same acceptance, but especially when we talk about healthy families, 
uh, health is measured to some extent um, to our ability to honor the teaching in the Torah to love your neighbor as yourself and to welcome everyone into the Jewish family and into the family of humanity. Great, great. I, I love the extension that it's not just biological, right? It, it, it's also this connection of how we are communal beings and how we are, you know, the, the statement that was given to Moses to remind God's people, um, remember you were one strangers. So how you treat the stranger matters. Um, Dr. Watt, uh, Rabbi kind of laid it out. I never heard that interpretation that couture could actually be another name for Hagar. That's new to me. So we'll talk more about that when offline, uh, Rabbi. Because um, what's also always interpreted to me is that couture had children and they went eastward. And there's been an interpretation that even couture's children could be the early um, antecedents of Hinduism and Eastern religious faith. That's an interesting conversation to have. But be that as it may, what we do know is that the Abrahamic faith, Judaism, Christianity, and is Islam have this unique commonality. And so, Dr. Watt, your understanding from the Quranic perspective around family and the importance of family. Absolutely. And, and I guess uh, I'll pick up right from there about the story of um, Abraham and Hagar and, and Sarah and their respective children. And, and even where there are some differences in our faith traditions about, you know, who exactly uh, did what, <laughs> you know, the story. <laughs> Um, you know, the what's what's definitely there, and I think what we can agree on is there is def there are themes that emerge about family. For example, the theme of uh, needing to stay together, or when Abraham leaves, you know, the needing to uh, mm. form community with others around. So, you know, in the Islamic interpretation, um, Hagar is the one who is left uh, behind, and she's with the baby, um, mm -hmm. you know, Ismail, and there's no food, there's no water, and a lot of the rites of the modern-day uh, hajj that we do today, the pilgrimage at Mecca, is actually in interpretation of her very movements, mm -hmm. her running back and forth between the mountains seven times, and the, the well and the gushing of the water, the zemzem water that, that, that comes up. And without going into all the details of Hajj specifically, it is this concept of what do you do when you are with family? What happens when family separates? How do you build community around you? Um, because then, of course, an entire nation builds around the two of them, uh, for example. And if we go even further back, we, we talked about here, Adam and Eve. And not only is it messy, if you will, but it is you see themes emerging from so early on. The sons of Adam, for example, and Eve, how you see, for example, sibling rivalry happen right at the start, right at the beginning mm -hmm. there. And so these are uh, the beginning of human history and all the themes that emerge from there. How do you heal people's hearts when they mm -hmm. are your very own siblings, right? Um, and how do you move forward to what becomes propagating an entire uh, generation of people? Uh, but with some of that, um, whether it's guilt or resentment or healing that needs to then happen after the occurrences. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, without getting too much into a, uh, a theological conversation, you all are really just kind of uh, exciting me about this conversation of um, the, the different themes of in all of our holy books around internal family dynamics and external family dynamics, external communal, communal dynamics. And I think of Jacob or Jacob and, and his 
his messiness with his own brother, let alone his own, you know, experience of four children by four different women. And, you know, the pain of um, Leah, who says, after the sixth child is born, now maybe he'll love me, right? I mean, the pain of that statement has always has been haunting, like a woman who is so asking for the basic affection of a husband, and he doesn't provide that to her. And the, the thought that the children can somehow link that, um, you know, is fascinating. I mean, without even getting to the messiness of incest and the rape of a sister, um, by brothers in that conversation. So um, we can spend a whole hour just on, on those realities. But let me ask this question to set us up even further. When I, when, when I bless, when I do baby dedications and, and christenings and rituals, I quote two scriptures um, out of the Hebrew uh, Bible slash Old Testament um, and some out of the New Testament as well. I would say children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is God's reward. So children come from God. They are on loan, if you would, to us parents. They're not ours. They belong to the divine. And our job, the second verse I'll quote, is Proverbs, again, out of the Old Testament, out of the Hebrew Bible, train up your children in the way that they should go. And when they get older, they shall not depart. And then I go back to the charge of the parents. Parents, and children are inextricably linked. Parents train them up. Children, when you are older, honor your mother and your father, that your days may be long upon the land that the Lord God gives unto you. And so this conversation between parental duty and child duty and parental responsibility and child responsibility, I often say, um, bay, uh, mayors and presidents kiss a lot of babies, but they don't bless babies. So I'm curious for the audience, what are the baby rituals and, and, and dedication that we do in our respective religious tradition to honor the life at the front end, right? Bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs, ba and bar mitzvahs come a little bit later, uh, Rabbi, but what, what are the early, are there earlier rituals of dedication in the Jewish faith? And also same question for you, Dr. Watt, early rituals of early dedications for our children. Dr. Watt, would you like to go first? I'd be uh, sure I'd be happy to. Um, I'll share that as a baby is born, um, one of the very first, in fact, I should say, even before a baby is born, in fact, we kind of start the this dedication really honestly. Yes, exactly. Uh, in fact, I would say we'll take it even further back from the moment of conception. It's interesting. I mean, uh, and, and hopefully this is, um, you know, when I say here and share it, uh, it it's, uh, you know, I teach this course to, um, you know, uh, young couples who are just starting off and we talk to them about how uh, we're taught all these beautiful islamic traditions um that even even in intimacy even in that moment where you may otherwise not really even be thinking of god right at that moment there is actually a dua or a, a prayer to be said in the moment of um uh, basically when a couple is having sex to say like you know may god protect my progeny should there be a progeny that comes out of that 
Mm. Um, to, to protect the progeny from Satan and from any difficulty right in that moment. I mean, imagine the wherewithal you have to have. And so wow. from, you know, preconception we're talking. And then, of course, within pregnancy, there are a lot of different aspects of how um, the child is actually in the womb hearing and understanding. So a lot of uh, reflection on uh, prayer and reading Quran and, and understanding that the child is actually, the fetus is actually starting to be able to hear. And what they hear in utero um, and how they're held in utero is actually something that's comforting to them. So imagine if that's prayer, imagine if that is scripture that they're hearing, that that carries with them forward. So there's all these ideas. As soon as the child is born, the concept of reciting in their ear, the adhan, the adhan is the call to prayer. Mm. And in that call to prayer, there's a, just, you know, there's the oneness of God, right? And the message of Muhammad, peace be upon him, is mentioned there. And it's, um, and the child doesn't understand anything, but it's that source of, you know, in the, in the, the recitation, and usually this should be the parents that do so, um, to kind of give them that beginnings of what faith can offer. Mm-hmm. There's other beautiful rituals about taking something sweet, particularly like a date, which now we understand the, 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 the um, nutritious value of dates, right? But something sweet to kind of put into their mouth, even before they're suckling as babies when they're first born, that then helps kind of the whole process as we understand now to be able to suckle <laughs> and to nurse. Fascinating. Is that done in the context of a communal? Uh, so for example, we would do a baby blessing or baby dedication, not a baby baptism, because we don't believe in baby baptism. We believe in adult baptism, if you would, but as a baby, we dedicate and christen. Would the Adan and this ritual be done in the context of community in the, in the Meshtit? So it's actually happening right at birth. So it's actually right in, it's in the hospital room, right in the hospital room, right at the home. But what is communal definitely about it is that, for example, this idea of taking the, um, the tenheik, which is taking that sweet date or something and putting it in their mouth, it said that it should be done by somebody who is righteous. Mm. And so usually people will call their imam or will call their religious leader to be there or even just a righteous person to do so in hopes that this transfers onto the child as well. At the time, in the hospital, if you would. Yeah, right at the very, this is day one, day zero, if you will. Now I'm gonna, I want to push it. So then what might be the next stage of ritual? At, at what age? At one, two, three, is there something else then that would come? The next biggest stage would definitely be at the time of puberty. So when a child hits uh, puberty and there are practices pre uh, pubescent, which is kind of teaching the rituals of prayer, of washing, the ritual wash, um, all, all the steps of how to fast and they do so kind of, step by step, little by little, so that when puberty happens, whichever child's a little bit different, the exact age, but when that happens, they're ready. They're ready to start the prayers. They're ready to start the fasting of Ramadan. They're ready to start the covering with modesty, things of that nature. So when you say puberty, I want to stay here and dwell, dig a little bit. When you say at the time of puberty, would you, would it be equivalent? And and Pam, you helped me out on this too. Would it be then something that would be equivalent to a bar mitzvah or a bar mitzvah? Um, Is there a name of that pubescent ritual there is it's not quite the same in which there is an entire um uh, uh celebration as we see in our bar mitzvahs about mitzvahs it's, it's so beautiful um here it's almost like a rite of passage that happens okay and there is definitely an acknowledgement and some choose to celebrate it what's the name depending on cultures what would be the name of that ritual not a specific um name there's not a specific name to the celebration it really is something that's cultural done different by different cultures Gotcha. So Rabbi, similar, take us from preconception all the way up to bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs. 
Thank you. So I want to start from after birth and I'll work my way back. Um, so it is our tradition that a baby receives a name in a sacred setting. Mm-hmm. When a girl is born, um, traditionally in the Orthodox uh, tradition, the father is called to the Torah in the synagogue and the baby is named uh, and blessed as the father is there. Uh, I've been in modern Orthodox synagogues where the mother also recites a blessing uh, that everyone hears and says amen to. In the more liberal traditions, uh, the father and mother join together and are at the Torah and the girl is named at the Torah. I was named when I was a baby with my father at the Torah. Um, we were Orthodox at the time. For a boy, there is something called a brit milah, the covenant of circumcision. And it follows in the footsteps of the story in uh, the Bible that talks about Abraham circumcising Isaac on the eighth day. And so this is done on the eighth day. Um, now, because of COVID, sometimes the circumcision takes place in the hospital earlier than the eighth day, and it's done, uh, you know, in that way, but also on the eighth day, there's a special ceremony to acknowledge. And then, of course, as you were saying, Reverend Daryl, there's bar and bat mitzvah, which means literally the son of the commandment and the daughter of the commandment. It says in the Talmud that when a child attains puberty, that then they are a religious adult. Mm-hmm. So the boys would be able to become witnesses once they hit that age. Um, and it, it goes into some detail and talks about how uh, boys tend to mature from a certain starting age. I can't remember what that starting age is at this moment, going all the way to 18. And so they choose the median age of 13. And girls mature just a little earlier, so they choose the median age of 12. Mm -hmm. And in egalitarian settings, you know, we have every, the boys and the girls become bar and bat mitzvah at at 13, just to Mm -hmm. be more egalitarian. I want to go back to to the pre-birth. So, you know, according to Judaism, we recognize conception as the time when the soul begins to hover. And we recognize birth as the time when the soul enters the body. So according to Judaism, life begins at birth. And of course, there's a joke that, well, life begins at birth, but it really begins when your child gets their PhD or their MD or their JD, (laughs) Um, this focus on Jewish education. But seriously, this sense that the soul is hovering, the soul is connected with the body, Actually, all the way from the time the parents are getting married, you know, there's a chuppah in Judaism, a canopy, and there's a, a, an understanding that some people believe that the souls of the children actually escort the bride and groom to the canopy because they're like, come on, get married so we can come in and, you know, and become humans. Um, so from the time of conception until birth, uh, we have the belief that the angels are educating the child. And of course, the child is also hearing the prayers and hearing, you know, teachings from the parents. Uh, So I feel like I'm in a a Quranic and and Jewish seminary and learning uh, some amazing uh, facts and and understandings about children, life, 
preconception, conception, um, uh, postnatal. Um, three, three words I want to ask each of you to make sure I understand in your religious tradition. So when, when I say nefesh or ruach in Hebrew, the ruach I often understood was the breath that God breathed into us to make us alive. Is nefesh a synonym for that or is that different? Rabbi Pam. And then so I'm going to ask you a similar question, Dr. Watt. There's actually three. There's nefesh, ruach, and neshama. Neshama, okay. And um, you were really splitting hairs when we try to translate them. We could say that neshama is that aspect of the soul that links with the eternal and where we all link with one another to the extent that we are all one uh, within uh, God. And the ruach is um, the spirit. Um, you could call it the emotional body. So mm. from this way of looking at it, uh, nishama is the spiritual body and ruach would be the emotional body. And then nefesh in this way of looking at it would be the psychic body or the ethereal body or the astral body. Um, I so actually earned my breathe. bachelor's. Please. When God breathed life into Adam and Eve, what did he, what word would you have, what That's word do you? Ruach. That's ruach. ruach. Okay. Yes. But the thing is, it says, well, actually all the words are there mm. um, because it says God breathed uh, into um, Adam and Adam became a nefesh, chaya, a living, a living being. Um, so the ruach is breathed in and you become the nefesh. So the nefesh is like the individual soul. What I also wanted to add, I earned my bachelor's degree in Tel Aviv University, and um, one of my majors was psychology, and I had a course in physiological psychology with Dr. Yehoshua Leibowitz of Blessed Memory. Um, Dr. Leibowitz had uh, six PhDs and rabbinic ordination. Wow. Um, and he began the class in the way that secular Israelis were just so frustrated they said, why is he spending all this time talking about this spiritual stuff? And he was teaching us the different levels of nefesh. So I just want to mention that, that according to the Kabbalah, a rock, a mineral has a nefesh, has a, a, a spirit. And then there's the plant nefesh. And then there's the animal nefesh. And then we go up uh, to the human levels. And there's actually all together, starting from mineral up to the highest human level, there's seven. So it's just, it's very, uh, it's very complicated. Something that isn't well known, and let me, let me just add this um, before we turn it over to Dr. Awad. In Judaism, there is a stream that believe in what we would call in the West reincarnation. Namely, that a soul is here and can come back. But it's not as if, you know, Pam is living now and Pam lived, you know, 500 years ago. It's that an aspect of our being reincarnates. And we see this in terms of education and the way in which we absorb the um, energy of our teachers, of our yeah. guides, or the way in which we walk in the spirit of a prophet who uh, really speaks to our heart. 
You, you, amazing. Again, I'm going to come back to this at a later time, uh, Rabbi, because there is a, both in Jewish, Judeo, I always say Judeo-Christian tradition, right? Uh, Jesus says that if you be quiet, the rocks will cry out. And the very idea that a rock could have a nephesh is powerful. Dr. Awad, um, what would be the words in, in the Islamic traditions for spirit and life? So so uh, w- w- give me those words. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because the Hebrew and the Arabic are so incredibly uh, close and related. Um, they're exactly very similar words. In fact, the uh, ruh would be the Arabic term. Uh, that we just heard before and uh, the ruh here is translated as soul uh-huh. and the nafs would be the arabic word <laughs> as you can hear the the difference kind of there uh, but the nafs uh, similarities is the self and very similar to what rabbi pam said there are multiple layers of the nafs and they refer to in the quran directly the types that the layers of nafs the layers of yourself and uh, being a psychiatrist myself, like this is of particular interest to me, because when we understand um, and we talk today about the field, we really think of it as more of a cognitive space. You find schools of psychiatry and psychology in uh, medical schools. You find them in schools of social sciences, and they're often with the neurosciences, all cognitive. But in the Islamic viewpoint, the ruh and the nafs become really important because they are actually the seat of the human being. In fact, the qalb or the heart is that other term that we use a lot. And that is the seat, the metaphysical heart, if you will. And it's connected to the ruh, the, sp- the soul and spirit, and connected to the nafs, which is the self. And then all of these are connected to emotions and other aspects of us. So when we think of a psychological, Islamic psychological model of a human being, right? The nafs and the ruh become these very important uh, concepts. And in the Quran, it talks about the layers, the different levels, I should call them levels of the nafs, and some of which are your lower base desires, mm-hmm. right? Your lower base self. And Freudian language, if you will, it would be more like the ego, right? Mm-hmm. Right? and so you're talking about the, the lower id. base self, the ego. Huh? I said not the id, the ego. You have all three actually. You can actually draw a connection between all three levels and between all three um, and uh, concepts. Although I have to say, the Quranic understanding far supersedes the Freudian concepts, which by and large are actually by the wayside today. But the concept is you understand it. It's like there's a lower base self. There's a higher a self that's going to transcends and connects to God. Mm-hmm. And then there are also the other forms of the nafs. And it's almost like you think of it, a tug of war, a pull mm-hmm. and push back and forth, right? Where you're kind of battling with your inner self and also battling with the external, whatever's happening externally and unseen in all this time, trying to transcend this and become uh, very much kind of angelic in your presence, although humans will never be exactly angels. So there's this whole, you know, uh, play happening between all of these terms. And and really what all of us immediately would think about, I'm sure, is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The whole notion of the the, 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 the pyramid and all of the needs and how that is, you know, what we know of neuroscience today would, would speak to uh, the cortex all the way to the frontal, prefrontal cortex. I mean, uh, or the amygdala to all the way to the prefrontal cortex and all that good stuff. The, why that is so important to our listeners, and I don't want them to think that we are just off on a theological, psychotheological, you know, diatribe. You know, this is at the heart of what ACES is about, right? Adverse childhood experiences. And that what we experience in our earliest form of our lives will be with us 
for the rest of our lives. Um, and how that get how experiences in the womb get encoded and play out um, in our lives, particularly the 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 wrong experiences, the hard experiences, the adversities that we have in life. And so, what Doctor um, Doctor Anda and Felitti discovered back in that you know their landmark study of Aces in in the in the eighties in San Diego was something that is becoming more prevalent in our conversations today. Um, and there are, there are all kinds of ACEs that we know about now, not just the original 10 frameworks um, that we talked about. Some have even said the pandemic will be an ACE, right? The, the, the generation born in this pandemic, I've, I've blessed four children in the last 19 months. Recall them the, the, the COVID babies, right? And not to be so, um, not, not to be morbid, but born in this era. And so what babies experience at the earliest stages of our lives, everything you just, you both just talked about from preconception to conception to post um, natal is so very important for parents to understand that the environment around your children shapes their lives. And so it is so help, so important for us to understand that 80% of a child's brain develops between birth and five, right? So what is happening around that child for those first five years, those first three years, so I'm gonna say that first year um, is not completely deterministic, but it shapes the child. And if there are negative adversities, I mean, there are negative and adverse experiences, then how that child is going to grow. I mean, I have an A score of nine or 10, depending on how I answer one question. And everyone who knows this science would say at the age of 53, Daryl, with an A score of nine or 10, as a black male in America, you were prone and at risk for all of these things. And I'm so grateful to God that I've been able to break those cycles, right? But my mom's A score was probably a 10. And so when you talk about A scores, you also have to talk about resilience. And when you talk about adversities and resilience, you're really talking about mental health. So, so Dr. Wad, you're an expert on Muslim mental health. What does that mean? Why is mental health connected to the importance of psychological, spiritual health important to family? Yes, they're intrinsically related. But before I say that really quick, you mentioned um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I just wanted to say, because I'm so passionate about, you know, rewriting history where it needs to be rewritten from that very Eurocentric view, if you will. But we have actually Ibn Sina or Abyssinia, who we've done some research at in my lab, who actually has had outlined the entire hierarchy of needs 900 years before Maslow. So just putting yeah. it out into the world. But <laughs> sometimes we need our histories rewritten a little bit. Um, and that's some of the work we do. Um, anyhow, but to answer your question, yes, intrinsically related mental health and kind of psycho-spiritual health. Absolutely. I'll give you an example since you spoke about COVID and COVID babies, if you will. Um, but also all of us, we're all going through a pandemic. And honestly, this pandemic, some uh, of COVID-19, some have actually experienced it directly. Many of us have had loss related to COVID-19. 
And many of us have also are still suffering and continue and will continue. uh, And we hope for alleviation on this, uh, you know, other manifestations of the pandemic, whether it be financial losses, housing crisis, you know, difficulty with uh, jobs and schools and homeschooling and all the rest that has happened with this pandemic, where I can say that some of us have been affected by the physical ramifications of the pandemic, all of us, and without exception, have been affected by the mental health pandemic within the pandemic of Mm COVID-19. Truly, we really have. And it's already coming at the heels of um, just a difficult time. It's been a difficult time in general for so many of us. And so when you think about the mental health and what people hold on to, this is where I'm going to share for the Muslim community um, a study that we did with my lab at Stanford, along with um, a partner community organization. One of the largest studies that we're aware of, it had 10,000 Muslims in it globally. Mm-hmm. And asking of them how, how they've been doing, actually, with the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was a study we did in stages. Right in March 2020, right when the pandemic hit, a couple months after, then some months after, then earlier this year, just to see how things were going. And I'll tell you something that I found one of the most salient points and most important points we discovered in this. Here's where faith comes in. We mm-hmm. found that for the Muslim community, what they were holding on to was faith. Honestly, mm. this is the main, I mean, that the, by and large, when you ask about coping mechanisms, um, secular, religious, positive, negative, use all these different coping mechanisms that we um, tested. It was the religious faith-based coping mechanisms that this community was holding on to. Yeah. So much so that there's a clinical correlation. And to me as a psychiatrist, this is so important. When I saw this, I, I literally like jumped out of my seat. It was so impressive and so interesting. This is where you cannot discount faith. Because in this community, we found that people that held on to, um, or I should say, had higher levels of uncertainty, intolerance. So this whole pandemic brought about so much uncertainty and continues to. And those who had higher levels of uncertainty, intolerance, had a direct clinical correlation by 60% of developing MDD or major depressive disorder. Wow. And then there was the opposite of that. And where uncertainty comes in is where faith and the Islamic faith teaches a lot about the concept of uncertainty and how certainty can only be held by God. And so therefore you enter into a situation, you don't know what's happening, but you believe firmly that God is at control in control. And regardless of what seems like chaos around you, if God is in control, then you have certainty in him and in his plan. And so with that kind of religious coping, it brought down Uh, this, you know, mental health considerations significantly. And the opposite was true as well. So when people say, oh, I don't know about faith. No, no, there is a clear scientific connection between faith and between people's well-being in this pandemic. And there's many such examples, but that's, you know, probably the most relevant and recent at the moment to share. I, um, I just wanted to just chime in here and I just thank you, Dr. Awad, for that, because that was one of the, the questions that I had on a list of things that we wanted to be touched on. And you really touched on it and covered and gave some valuable information regarding that. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Rabbi, tell us about um, from a rabbinic or Jewish perspective, um, the intersectionality of psycho-spiritual health, mental health, and, and particularly now during this pandemic, how are families coping mentally, psycho-spiritually? So I want to come at it from a different angle, not just a religiously different angle, but 
Um, Dr. Awad covered such a vast array of issues so beautifully. And I want to go to the issue of forgiveness and change. Mm. Because, you know, it's easy to say, um, well, we want to raise a generation of children who do not have these high A scores. Mm -hmm. We want to keep our children safer. We want to discipline them with kindness and not with corporal punishment. We want our institutions to be safe so that children are not, heaven forbid, being molested. And um, I am from a family of Holocaust survivors and Holocaust victims in my father's family. We lost over 100. And uh, so I was, you know, born into and as a little girl uh, already dealing with the energy of abuse that I didn't experience directly, but I lived through the effect of it. And, you know, the thing is, I think it's really important in our faiths to bring the belief that we can change at any moment, that notwithstanding what happened to us, we mm. can do better by the next generation. And notwithstanding what our ACE score is, just like you said, Reverend Daryl, you know, you're you have surpassed all the odds. Um, I think all of us um, need to believe in our children. We need to believe in our colleagues. We need to believe in members of our family and also in ourselves that it's possible at any moment to do what we call in Judaism, teshuva, to repent, to say, you know what? I'm sorry for what came before. I'm sorry for what I lived through. I'm sorry for what I did to you. I'm sorry for what the system did to me. And I'm going to do better, and I'm going to try to help the world go in a better direction, because I think that that's what allows us to go forward in any case. You know, um, Moshe Dayan was a great general um, in Israel, and, you know, I think the most important teaching he gave us is he said that we don't make peace with our friends. We make peace with our enemies. Mm. And I think that that's also important in terms of the inner struggle um, against uh, depression and against urges, um, but also with one another. And I'm not suggesting that we always have to turn a blind eye. There has to be justice too. But being able to reach out to those who were not our friends before and find our commonality and build community there, I think gives us a better chance in the world going forward. But listen, you, you just summarize something that I, I often do when I'm talking to kids in foster care and even adoption. Um, so we know that every April is Child Abuse Prevention Month. We know that every May is Foster Care Awareness Month. And we know that every November is Adoption Awareness Month. And I always like to tell clergy of all faiths, here are three months, and I'll even... I'll even add a fourth one onto the conversation, which is October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, because there's often the core occurrence of child abuse and domestic violence. And so for our listeners out there, this is a great conversation that I, I actually try to have a great segue into a, a bit of our conversation about why the whole family approach is so important, because you're right, often because of unforgiveness of what happened to us. Um, and so with kids in foster care, why did my mom or dad do this to me? Or why didn't they prevent this from happening to me? 
right? Why am I in foster care? The obvious question is, why aren't I with my biological parents? At some point, a kid, I think, is going to ask that question. And then the extreme of that adoption, why did my mom and or dad give me up? And notwithstanding the self issues of identity, the self-identity issues, there's the issue that you just raised, Rabbi, do I forgive them or not? And if I don't forgive them, what psycho-spiritual mental health effects is that going to have on me? And I often go back to the fifth commandment, right? Honor your mother and your father that your days and I often say to kids in foster care and adoption who are struggling with unforgiveness, the commandment is not about your mom and dad. It's for you. And, and I say, substitute honor with forgive. Forgive your mom and dad that your days may be long upon the land that the Lord God gives unto you. Because how many of us are walking around, adults are walking around with unforgiveness because of something ha that happened by the hands or lack of hands of their mother or father. How many black men in America are walking around with anger towards a father that they never knew? Or if they knew him, they knew him in a context. And not just black men, white men, Hispanic men, you name it. Paternal child health is often left out when we talk about maternal child health. And so as a family unit, we must look at the relationship of maternity and paternity if we're going to really deal with the whole self. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rabbi. What I wanted to say, you know, I once was in personal psychotherapy working through my anger over something that happened. And in fact, I want to say it's stronger, my rage. And I said at the end of a session, you know, I really need to forgive this person. Yeah. And my therapist very wisely said, yes, eventually you need to forgive this person, but first you need to experience your anger. Yeah. I think that the understanding that we can uh, give the people we work with the permission to feel their feelings and to move beyond uh, the threat of those feelings is what makes us the strongest. I mean, for Nelson Mandela to walk out of prison and then to do what he did in South Africa. Yeah. Um, that, so yeah, it's, it's a conversation, it's a cauldron. And I think that it would be wonderful if I'm not suggesting we give up the word victim or the word survivor. But if we could start to look at our victims who become survivors as heroes and as pioneers mm -hmm. um, so that we can start to credit people who turn the tide within their faith, within their community, within their gender, um, it, to lift them up as examples, maybe that would help because one of the things we all know is we all start to run away emotionally when we hear that somebody is a victim. Yeah. There's a part of us where it's very painful. And so if we could turn them into heroes, maybe it would be safer to work through this material in a more peaceful way. So um, Rabbi, you, you mentioned everything from the individuals to the communal in terms of forgiveness, right? The Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa helped that country avoid bloodshed. Um, I think 
similar commissions happened in after the Holocaust. And we're still trying to get to some of the truth of what happened. Um, there's a raging conversation in America today about reparations, right? Which really goes back to forgiveness and how do you repair that which was broken? Dr. Wad, you mentioned in one of our last times together, when the three of us were together last week on a webinar, the issue of Muslims who are the target um, in post 911 American society, right? Um, the the first and second Gulf Wars often has this attribution to it that we're going to get the Muslims for what they did to us. How are you helping families kind of cope with everything from the geo? political all the way to the individual and social and communal with these issues of bigotry and racism um, when it comes to Islamophobia? Thank you. And thank you for that question. It's so it's so important to, to think about the broader context. So I appreciate you taking it kind of all the way out and then kind of zooming, zooming into the family structure. Um, and the reality is, I mean, when you look at uh, the last uh, 20 years, let's take the 20 years since the, the tragedy of 9-11, and you think about um, how it's affected, well, the entire nation, in fact, the whole world globally. And come down to more of a then what happened in the aftermath, the repercussions. Yes, there were the uh, definitely uh, the wars, and there's a lot of, of course, propagated uh, thoughts and ideas that may not be accurate at all, and definitely the scapegoating of, a, of a, an entire population for the the, the faults of, of a few. Um, and if you think about then the um, the stigma, the marginalization, the kind of um, bigotry the xenophobia, Islamophobia that's come since. Yes, we're talking about a community that has been heavily marginalized. And if you think about mental health, right? When you know, as an, think about here as families, as a parent of, you know, myself, when I hear and know the stat of the re most recent study of how many school-aged children experience Islamophobia compared to like religion-based identifiers of their children, that that's the reason they experience bullying in school, not just at the hand of the school children of their own age, but in fact, even administrators and teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes even more so than their own peers, um, that the, that percentage is 50% of all American Muslim school kids. When you send your, as a parent, when I send my kid out into the world, knowing there's a high, you know, one in two chance, right? Like there's a, the likelihood that that's going to happen to at least one of my children, if not all, um, it's terrifying. It's truly terrifying. And when you think about how do I as a parent protect my child when they go out there, how do I give them the pride in their identity of who they are, not to have to water that down and make believe they're not who they are, right? And also, um, and by the way, that percentage was 50%. It was twice more than the next faith group over. So they were doing comparison of all different faith groups. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and, and I have to tell you, whenever Islamophobia strikes and it kind of peaks up, so does anti-Semitism. They go hand in hand. They're absolutely intrinsically connected along with other forms of phobias and isms. So how, what do we do here as parents? And so some of the work we have been doing is really looking at the family level, you know, at the communal level, trying to understand how to help best. Last time we were together, I shared a very difficult stat, and I guess I have to share it here too, which is we did a study on what we were noticing as clinicians was a very high rate of suicide attempts in this community. And we were noticing this clinically, anecdotally, but we didn't have like proof and evidence. So we did some uh, studies and we were just, I mean, it's not surprising, but it's still shocking. 
that when we got this back and we did a cross-sectional study across the U.S. and across all different faith groups here in the U.S., we found that the Muslim population had twice the mm. level of suicide attempts than the next faith group over. And that is a direct correlation for a lot of what they have been experiencing as community for the last several decades. And when you think about how do you protect a community? So we were, we're now we're launching all these educational campaigns in 2022. We have this campaign called the 500 Imams campaign. We're really hoping to train at least 500, if not more, of course, um, Imams and religious and community leaders on how do you address topics like suicide and even mental health, but from a religious lens, along with the scientific lens, kind of marrying these two things together. Because what we found is if you go purely secular and say, here are the important kind of, you know, these are gatekeepers, right? All of these imams, leaders are gatekeepers. And if you talk to them just from the purely scientific, they're not very interested. If you talk purely from the religious, you're missing some of the most important scientific advancements that we now know are protective and preventative. So we had to marry the two. And this is kind of the work that we did. And um, that's how we're starting to address some of these difficulties. Well, listen, um, I have one final question, but what what we're just talked about, um, Dr. Wad, in terms of every parent's fear of what their kids will go through. There was a recent case here in Philadelphia, which is just 35 minutes south of where I live, um, where a teacher ripped off the hijab of a, of a young school-aged girl. And the trauma, right, that that girl experienced mm-hmm. and the teasing Right. And I'm sure that's happened across the country. Um, and to your to your point, why I so appreciate the two of you. Right. Because here is a black man and um, two women whose voices aren't always um, elevated in the scientific world, in the ecclesiastical world. Right. How, how rare are you, Rabbi Pam, in a world dominated by male rabbis? How many female rabbis are there? And how rare are you, Dr. Watt, in the teaching of mental health at the level which you teach it and teaching of law? Um, I'm sure there's some women, some men who say we don't want women teaching law to us. Right. Um, and 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 I've tried to elevate women in ministry in our church. Um, and I've had my 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 male colleagues say to me, why are you ordaining so many women? And so our voices, I so appreciate in the uniqueness of our experiences. Um, that's why I love America. Right. Congress, the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That means in America, I can study whatever God I want to study and adhere to whatever God I want to hear. And Congress will not make me, force me to study the Quran or force me to study Torah or force me to study the Gospels. And any infringement upon that First Amendment, we must fight to the death because that in American society is one of the greatest things. There undoubtedly will be folk, and this is my last question, um, Jackie, and I want to say this to the Pascal Science Foundation. You found not only three religious professionals, you found some academic and research experts that I hope you would integrate into the life of the foundation um, because you can't get any higher than Stanford and um, the, the board of rabbis that and Ohala, the work that the rabbi is doing. These are major nonprofit NGO, university level um, research work that must be integrated into faith and the social sciences so that one doesn't feel alienated. That leads me to my last question. Undoubtedly, someone listening to us would say, but I'm not a person of faith. 
You all have talked about Islam, talked about Judaism, talked about Christianity. I'm agnostic. I don't even know if there is a God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe that there is a God, but I believe in raising my family well. I believe in giving my children safety and structure and stability. As people of faith, as women of faith, as mothers, um, and I'm a father, how do we answer those who may not be adherents to a faith, but we speak the language of love and parenting? What, what do you want to say to those listening to us in that category? Pam. You know, along with that category, and here we are as Muslim, Christian, and Jew, um, and I, um, not to look, not to leave out the Pascal Sykes uh, Foundation, um, Holy Sisters who are here, but just to not put you on the spot religiously. I want to also acknowledge the path of the Baha'i, the Sikh, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Jain, all the different faiths, and those who, as you said so eloquently, Reverend Daryl, who don't profess a faith or don't feel that is I think it's important to have faith in the universe and to have faith in humanity and to have faith in one another and to be willing to have the courage to acknowledge that, that I mean, and it rips my heart, the, the tearing off of the hijab by a teacher, that's child abuse. Absolutely. That's child abuse. And to be able to acknowledge that Sikh children and Muslim children and, you know, Jewish kids wearing a kippah, um, whatever our faith or whatever our uh, predilection that is spiritual, there needs to be room for it. And yeah. there needs to be room for those who don't profess a faith to not have a faith to, you know, if they want to say, I pledge allegiance and not say under God, that we welcome that as well in order to not be creating kinds of abuse um, and straitjacketing. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Absolutely. Rania. I appreciate that very much. I appreciate the sentiment very much and would say um, what needs to be said has been said and, and definitely a reminder to all of us that uh, what binds us together as, you know, in humanity is really what comes first, regardless of what it is. I always say this, and maybe this is the, the physician side of me, but, you know, under all these layers that we have externally of what we look like and who we are and what we present as and what we identify as, we all have the exact same flesh and blood underneath. You know, it is, we believe the same. And it's, it's, um, it's really important to orient ourselves and speaking of youth to orient them to that concept as well. Because it's often the, you know, we as adults, you know, in that situation who make that divisiveness, they're different, us and them, we are different than them. This is how we're, but if you just were to peel off those layers, we're all actually the same. <laughs> and so that's where that, that very important lesson will come in. And I hope those who are hearing this, like you said, and saying, but I don't identify with a specific faith. Remember that we are all actually uh, siblings in humanity. And I think that's what's most important here. I love both of your statements, faith in humanity and siblings in humanity. And I hope that all of us, regardless of our race, region, or religion, would figure out how to not just tolerate one another, but understand that we have more in common than we do differences. 
Um, this has been a delight, an absolute delight. And Jackie, I want to thank you and Rochelle and Joni and certainly Fran and, and Skip and Memory um, and all of the board of trustees at the Pascal Sykes Foundation for even having the wherewithal to have a faith and family podcast. Um, I hope we can do a round two on this because as you can see, Rabbi Pam and Dr. Ronnie and I can talk a lot about how, what is the intersectionality of faith, religion, spirituality, family, how it all comes together. And I hope that all of us, we didn't talk about our respective families and, and children, um, but, you know, as parents, we all have the same thing. Um, the, the, the federal government has something called the Essentials for Childhood, right, that we want to promote safety, stability, and nurture for all children. Safety, stability, and nurture for all children, Jewish children, Muslim children, Christian children, Baha'i children, Hindu children, Sikh children. I happen to live in New Jersey and we're on paper known as the most religiously diverse state in America. I love that fact about my adopted new state because if we could help folk understand their commonality, even while having different religions, I think we would take the world in a much stronger place towards peace, salaam, shalom. Jackie, I'm going to turn it back over to you and the, and the foundation. Okay. Thank you again for having us. You're welcome. Well, thank you. That's all the time we have for today. We'd like to thank our guests, Reverend Armstrong, Rabbi Friedman, and Dr. Awad. Please join us next time when we welcome Christine Norbert Beyer, Commissioner of New Jersey Department of Children and Families, when we discuss public policy in action, responding to families in the state of New Jersey. Working Together for Working Families, sponsored by the Pascal Sykes Foundation, is published monthly. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Whole Family Approach, visit our website, wholefamilyapproach.org.